Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, as we think of this Easter weekend, as we think of the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, I was drawn to this passage in John chapter 3, particularly uh, just thinking of what it says. You know, the book of John was written for a purpose, and you'll find that purpose in John chapter 20 and verse 31, where it says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, in other parts of John, we will also read in John 10.10, for example, where it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or John 1.4, where it says, In him, that is in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. See, when we think of Easter, what I was thinking of particularly is why Jesus came into this world. You know, why did he have to come into this world and the whole thing of his death and his resurrection, what did that do? Well, I would say, based on what we're going to look at, what Jesus' death and resurrection did was purchase for his people new life. That's why he came into this world. In fact, there's a familiar Christmas hymn that we sing that even uh, explains this. Hark the herald angels sing. Most of us know this. Listen to one of its stanzas. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born, why? That we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. You know, this Easter weekend, as we think through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, particularly that's what we want to look at this morning, as to why all this uh, Easter celebration, what did it achieve? See, because for those of you who are listening this morning, You know, the last thing I would want is for you all to just simply listen to something of the resurrection of Christ and still be misguided in terms of where you stand before the Lord and ultimately be damned in hell for all of eternity. 
That would be a great tragedy. So that's why I want to speak to you particularly with regards to what it is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus achieved. But not just to the unbelievers or the false converts that may be listening this morning, but even to the Christians, I want to remind you of the new life that Christ has brought about as a result of his death and resurrection. And I trust that as we think through how Jesus Christ has brought it all about, it would cause us to be even more thankful to him, that we would grow in our love for him even more, and that we would shine even more brightly for him in light of what we will look at this morning. So I've titled this morning's sermon, or just before we get into that, just a note about this new life. You know, sometimes uh, in the Bible it's also called as eternal life. Eternal life. And when it says eternal life, most scholars would agree that that. When it says eternal, it's not referring to the the quantity, the, the span of the life, as much as it is the quality of the life. That it has a divine quality of life. In fact, literally in the Greek, it is life of the age to come. And therefore, it is talking about this resurrection or heavenly existence. This eternal life is nothing but the participation in the eternal life of God that Jesus Christ brings because he died and rose on the third day with the offer of this life to all who would believe in him. And so this eternal life, this life of the age to come, this life of God, is what we are going to consider this morning that Jesus Christ has brought, both to us who are believers in the Lord Jesus, and I trust that for those of you who are not Christians, who are not believers, would consider this and would turn your hearts and your life to the Lord Jesus. So I've titled this morning's sermon as... as the new life of the exalted Savior. And from John 3, verses 1 through 15, we're going to look at this section under three headings. The need for new life, in verses 1 through 3. The agent of new life, in verses 4 through 8. And then the object of new life, in verses 9 through 15. So let's look first at the need for new life. Now before we get into John chapter 3, I want to give you just a bit of a context. In, uh, at the end of chapter 2, in John 2 verses 23 to 25, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast performing signs there, it says that many believed. And yet, 
you'll see this in the Gospel of John particularly, this belief is not necessarily a genuine belief, but a sort of superficial belief. You can maybe even call it just an excitement, just an external show of perhaps belief. And at the end of chapter 2 in John, it says that many believed because they saw his signs, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus knew that this belief was not genuine faith. These people were fascinated by the various signs that Jesus had performed, but they didn't truly believe in him. And Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, which was nothing other than unbelief. And now Nicodemus served now as an example, as a man representing the kind of person who is simply attracted to Jesus for the signs that he performs and the wonders that he performs, but doesn't truly believe in Jesus for who he really is. In fact, there's even linguistic connections from the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 where it says, you know, Jesus knew what was in the heart of man and start chapter 3, now there was a man. Yeah, that sort of man who believed simply because of the signs, which is not genuine belief, but is attracted to Jesus for that simple reason, but didn't have genuine belief in Jesus. So it says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So here's an unbelieving man named Nicodemus drawn to Jesus for the signs that he has done. And it says that he is a Pharisee. Now Pharisees were the teachers of God's word during that time. They were well trained and they knew their Old Testament scriptures well. The New Testament obviously wasn't written then. They were very religious, devout, moral people. Very fastidious, very disciplined about obeying all the various rules. In fact, they had their own extra biblical uh, rules as well in order to be religious before God. And in fact, if you look down at verse 10, Jesus calls this man Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. So it's quite probable that even amongst the Pharisees, even amongst those teachers, he was one of the teachers, one of the most prominent teachers. Now in addition to being a prominent Pharisee, Nicodemus was also a ruler of the Jews. Most likely meaning part of the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish governing council made up of a select 71 men, very elite group of men they were, and they, they governed the, the Jewish people at the time under the Roman Empire. He was part of the Jewish court, you could say. So Nicodemus, he was a powerful political man. He was a religious scholar. He was pious. He was moral and most likely a wealthy man too. You know, you can't get a man better than him. 
Verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to Jesus by night. And you say, why the particular detail? Now, as I've mentioned to you before, you know, Everything in the Bible is inspired. There's nothing that God gives in His Word that is wasted, just, you know, random information. So then why this particular information that He came by night? Well, John's Gospel has a particular way of describing darkness and night as symbolic of spiritual darkness. So it's quite likely that as much as this guy Nicodemus came to Jesus at nighttime, actually, but it's also pointing to the fact that this man Nicodemus is in spiritual darkness. So this man in spiritual darkness, he's drawn to Jesus. Why? Because of the external signs that Jesus has shown. And he says this, We know... You know, probably speaking on behalf of the religious leaders of the day, that this is God who's enabling you to perform these signs. Now, there's probably even a, an attempt of impressing on Jesus, hey, I'm part of the elite group, so we know, you know, you're a good teacher from God. And he just simply makes that statement, and it's almost like, you know, if it was written in a dramatic way, there's, there's almost this dot, 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 dot after that statement. It's almost like Nicodemus is saying, this is how we have assessed you, the religious elite. This is how we've assessed you. You are a teacher from God and you have anything to say? Because at this point, all he sees in Jesus is that he's a good teacher from God. But Jesus, being God, he knows exactly what is in the heart of Nicodemus, which is nothing but unbelief. And so Jesus goes straight to the point of what Nicodemus actually needs to hear. Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Essentially, Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, if you were born again, then you would know that these signs are not just simple signs for the sake of intriguing people and gathering a crowd. No, these are signs that are pointing to the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you are seeing these signs, but you can't spiritually discern them. Nicodemus, you can't spiritually discern them because you are spiritually blind. You cannot see what these signs mean 
And by implication, Jesus is also saying, you cannot see for that matter who I am. You're simply seeing me as a teacher. Because Jesus is the Messiah himself who is standing in front of him, the light of the world that has come into this dark world. And it's not just seeing the kingdom of God. In fact, in verse 5, Jesus will say, unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God, let alone discern anything spiritually. See, this is what Nicodemus needs to hear and embrace, that he needs to be born again, that he needs new life. You know, sometimes, you know, in our day and age, you know, people can think it's the Hitler-like people, you know, the, the ones who harm tons of innocent people and do really horrible things. They're the ones who don't want to enter the kingdom of heaven. But others, oh, you know, we're not all that bad we should be okay to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I want to remind you again, I mean, Nicodemus was a man that had it all. Extremely religious. Very zealous for obeying God's law. In fact, even having extra biblical laws as well. He knew the scriptures well and even taught the scriptures. He was very moral. He was part of the elite Jewish governing council and a wealthy man. From a worldly point of view, he, he's the good guy of good guys. And yet Jesus says to him, you need to be born again to enter and see the kingdom of God. So here's the point. Whether you are a very immoral person, or for that matter, a very moral person. Whether you're a religious person or an irreligious person. Whether you do good works toward others or you don't do any of that stuff. It doesn't matter. You need to be born again. If indeed you are not. It doesn't matter if you pray many times a day. It doesn't matter if you've gone on a pilgrimage somewhere for religious reasons. It doesn't matter if you've changed a lot of your behavior from what you were before to now being more good and kind towards others. You need to be born again. You need a radically new life. A life that is transformed from the inside out. Not just simply a life that has some small changes on the outside. Well, now the question comes, okay, so how does this new life come about? What's the process? And that brings us to our second point, the agent of new life in verses 4 through 8. The agent of new life. Explaining how this life comes about. Verse 4, so Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
You know, other than Christianity, every other religion is focused on something physical and external that man must do in order to enter the kingdom of God. And that's how Nicodemus is thinking. The external, the, the physical thing. What is it that I need to do to enter the kingdom of God? And so he's perplexed and he's saying, how can I go back into my mother's womb? Just in physical terms, external terms. How can I go back into my mother's womb a second time and be born again? So Jesus answers him, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now what does he mean by being born of water and Spirit? Well, Jesus is trying to explain what it means to be born again using Old Testament language, something that would have been more familiar with Nicodemus considering he was an Old Testament scholar and teacher. And Jesus is alluding to the new covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Let me just read that. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the prophet Ezekiel is talking about a day that is coming when God's people will be restored back to the Lord where there will be spiritual cleansing. And that's the imagery of the clean water, symbolizing spiritual cleansing. And, and at that time, God will give a new heart, not a cold, stony, dead heart, but a heart of flesh, a heart that is alive, that is responsive. And where God will put His Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, in the person, empowering the person to walk in obedience to God. So that's what it means to be born with Spirit and water. It means that God takes, you, takes out that old sinful heart, cleanses the person from sin, gives the person a new heart or a new life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for God. That is what being born again is all about. And Jesus adds this as well in verse 6 where he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Flesh here meaning human flesh. That when you're born naturally of a human mother, it results in a natural, physical, human life. But when you're born supernaturally of the Holy Spirit, then you have supernatural life. So natural, natural life. Supernatural, supernatural life. So here's the thing. 
if the natural man needs to be made spiritually alive by the Spirit, then it means by implication that the natural man is spiritually dead. Because otherwise the natural man wouldn't need to be made spiritually alive. The natural man is fundamentally spiritually dead or is in spiritual darkness. We know this from Ephesians 2.1 where it says we were dead in trespasses and sin. This is the universal condition, natural condition of man without exception. Man, woman, boy, girl. Everyone is naturally spiritually dead. And there's nothing that any man or woman or boy or girl can do to bring about this spiritual birth. He cannot will himself to be born supernaturally any more than he can will himself to be born naturally. You just can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can grant this life, this cleansed new life. And without being born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You know, I like what, how one theologian in this section said, said the remedy corresponds to the problem. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Now, for example, just, just a few days ago, my youngest son, Judah, he was, he, he, was on, he was on a high chair and he slipped and he fell and he broke his forearm. Now, the problem is a broken forearm. But for a broken forearm, you don't give cough medicine. Thankfully, the doctors diagnosed the problem and he's now in a cast. The remedy should correspond to the problem. So similarly, see, if the problem was that, you know, you were doing all these bad things, that's what the problem was, Jesus would have said, unless you do good things, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. If the problem was a lack of knowledge, Jesus would have said, you need to have more knowledge to enter the kingdom of God. But that's not the problem. You know, that's why it's such a tragedy when people think the solution to entering the kingdom of God is doing good works and being moral. That's a misdiagnosis of the problem. It is precisely because the fundamental problem of man is spiritual deadness that any person would need to be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. You can do all the good works under the sun. You can try to live the most moral life, but if you are spiritually dead, it doesn't matter. And no human being can bring about this new life. God has to supernaturally work to give life to the spiritually dead person. See, for Nicodemus, someone who knew his Old Testament well, 
you know, this great person, he, he would have never thought that he himself needed spiritual cleansing and spiritual life. I mean, he was a Jew. I mean, Jews were the people of God, weren't they? He was a top Pharisee at that. He was religious and moral and very disciplined and fastidious about keeping the various rules. So he was shocked to hear that even someone like him needed to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. His ethnicity, his religiosity, his righteous works, none of those things qualified him to enter the kingdom of God. And so this is turning everything upside down for Nicodemus about how Nicodemus thought how one would be able to enter the kingdom of God. So now Jesus says to him, verse 7, Don't marvel or don't be shocked that I said to you, you must be born again. Yeah, you can't do this. It only happens through an act of God. And now Jesus gives an analogy to try and explain. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is saying, you know the wind, right? You can't control the wind in any way. You can't even see it. And yet you can see its effects, whether it's the whistling or the rustling of leaves and so on. You can, you can see its effects. And Jesus says, so it is with the Spirit, with the work of the Spirit. You can't control the Spirit's work. He simply blows over wherever He wishes and grants life when He wills. But the effects can be seen in transformed lives of those who have been born by the Spirit. I mean, here's how it happens, right? So, someone is going about their life. You know, maybe they've been churched, maybe they haven't been churched. There might be some superficial interest in God or maybe no interest in God whatsoever. And then one fine day, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then suddenly, things start changing. There's a growing love for Jesus. There's a growing recognition that He is my only Lord and Savior. There is a turning away from sin. There's a growing in love for the Word of God and wanting to follow His ways. What has happened to this person? Well, the Spirit of God has blown in and given spiritual life. That's what's happened to this person. It doesn't mean that this person will be sinless, but it does mean that this person has a new disposition, a new orientation to the things of God and to the things of Christ. And there is a turning away from self. And the effect of that Spirit's work is then seen in the life that that person lives. That everyone begins to see just over time. Hey, this person is different now and is changing. 
what's going on here? The Spirit has blown in and given life. And this is true of everyone who has been born again. And I would just say this for those of us who are born again. Oh, we should be so thankful to the Lord, shouldn't we? For what He has done. Because it was such an impossibility for us to have this life. And He has done it and has given this life. And how much more thankful we should be for this life. Okay, so the question is, okay, so there is a need for new life. And the Holy Spirit is the agent by which this new life comes. But, but how, you know, how does one appropriate this new life to oneself? And here we see the object of new life in verses 9 through 15. The object of new life. You know, Nicodemus, with everything that Jesus has said, is now even more shocked. You know, he's just so taken aback, you could say, mind blown. That's where he's at right now. So verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like, uh, you know, I, I just can't understand how all this can happen. I mean, how is it then the Spirit comes about and gives this life? Now Jesus rebukes Nicodemus and points out the problem to Nicodemus. Verse 10 and 11. Jesus answered him saying, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Essentially, Jesus is saying, the problem is not that you do not understand what has been said to you at, on an intellectual level. The problem is that you do not receive our testimony. In other words, you do not accept what I say. The problem is not intellectual. The problem is here. You don't want to accept what I'm saying. The problem is the rebellion in your heart of not wanting to believe what I say to you. Is what Jesus is saying. Now Jesus continues. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus is saying, because you don't believe, you can't even fathom things like new births that happen here on earth. Then how will you believe if I told you more grander things about the age to come? Heavenly things like that. See, here's Nicodemus' problem. On an intellectual level, he recognizes Jesus as a teacher from God. But he doesn't see Jesus as anything more than that. He's unwilling to accept and believe that he himself needs spiritual 
cleansing and that he needs to be made spiritually alive or he needs to be born again. And for that, he needs to be wholly dependent on God. This is not something he can do by himself. That's his problem. So what then is the answer to the rebellion in the heart of man? And how then will new life from the Spirit come into any man's heart? Answer, it is Jesus himself. Because of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So Jesus first explains who he is, verse 13. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, Jesus is going back to the Old Testament to try and explain his identity to Nicodemus. And here first he picks on Proverbs 30 verse 4. Let me just read that. You know, with all the Proverbs that are there in the book of Proverbs, there's this kind of riddle at the end of the book of Proverbs. And this is what it says in Proverbs 34. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. And again, it's a mystery in the book of Proverbs. It's not answered in the book of Proverbs. It's just left there like that. And Jesus is saying, you know that riddle there in the book of Proverbs? I'm the son of the one in heaven. I'm the son of God who has come down from heaven. And then the term son of man... That's a specific title for the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Where this Son of Man is given the everlasting kingdom by the Ancient of Days, by God the Father. So Jesus is essentially saying, I'm the Son of God from the book of Proverbs, and I'm the Son of Man from the book of Daniel, the long-awaited Messiah come down from heaven. This is who I am, the Son of God, the Messiah. Now Jesus explains what he has come to do. Verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now this language of lifted up, it's used uh, in a few other instances in the Gospel of John and it it refers to the, the crucifixion and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So it's all of that combined, this language of lifted up in the book of John. The crucifixion as well as the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus now is comparing 
his crucifixion and his exaltation with something that has happened in the Old Testament again many years ago as he's explaining what he's come to do. And I want us to spend the rest of our time there. Uh, This is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Let me just read it quickly. It'll help set up the context of what Jesus is saying. From, From Mount Hor, they, that is the people of Israel, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So here's what's happening here in Numbers 21. God has rescued the Israelites from Egypt, you know, in a wonderful, miraculous way. And they've been wandering in the wilderness for almost 40 years because of their own disobedience. And yet God has been graciously leading them and providing for them in every way. And it's at a time where the old generation of Israels have almost gone and it's mostly the new generation of Israelites now. And just prior to this incident, In fact, in Numbers 21, 1 to 3, God also provided this victory against their enemies. So it's just after that incident. And yet now the people speak out against God. Why have you brought us out from Egypt to die in this wilderness with no food or water and we loathe the food that we eat? I mean, can you imagine? It's been almost 40 years since they've left Egypt. God has not let them down even once. He had provided for them and cared for them in every way. In fact, every day there was even manna falling from heaven so that they wouldn't have to go out hunting for food. It was just right there. And now, they say, why have you brought us here to die? In this wilderness, it would have been better than Egypt. And we loathe this food. They're essentially questioning God's goodness and provision. They're being ungrateful and rebelling against God. And so what does God do? He sends serpents. Fiery serpents. And you can imagine the camp of Israel at this time would be 
a million odd people, maybe even more. So we're not talking about one or two serpents, poisonous snakes. We're talking lots and lots and lots of poisonous snakes. You know, just, just that would have been scary. But then on top of that, lots of people were now beginning to die, is what the text says. Many died. I mean, so they're, they're, they're frightened. You know, they've just rebelled against God. Now, now they recognize they've sinned. They come before Moses saying, please do something. You know, go pray to God. Ask God to help us somehow from these poisonous snakes. And then God says to Moses, build a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and everyone who would look at this bronze serpent would live. Now, there was nothing magical about this bronze serpent, right? In fact, even to prove that, you know, people venerated this bronze serpent so much. In 2 Kings, you'll hear, during the time of King Hezekiah, he will actually break this bronze serpent because people were venerating it and worshipping this as some sort of magical thing. So there was nothing magical about this bronze serpent that Moses had made. It was simply the means by which the people would be saved. So in other words, these people, if they have been bitten by these poisonous snakes, they would have to come and look by faith, believing this is what God has said will save us, and only by faith could they be then healed. Now this is a remarkable grace of God to a people that was rebellious. But you, you have to think, you know, w- w- what is that about, you know? In fact, even think, why a bronze snake? I mean, why didn't God just say, you know what, just, just you know, get, get one of those poisonous snakes and you just put it up on a pole? Why did he say, get a bronze snake? You know, the I- I- image of a snake, essentially. Well, bronze was something, it was a kind of metal that, you know, even in the Old Testament you read that sometimes bronze could be used as mirrors. It was something that was brilliant. Something beautiful about this thing. And yet, this brilliant, beautiful thing is now made to look like something evil and deadly. You get that? And not just evil and deadly, but that is on a pole, almost as if to say, cursed of God. Now do you see why Jesus is making the connection? That just as the bronze serpent was raised up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might bear the righteousness of God. 
where the beautiful son of God was treated as the most wicked, evil thing and bore the very curse of God on himself so that we, people like you and me, who have been infected with the poison of sin, would then be healed and forgiven and be given new life as we believe in him by faith in what he has done on that cross, taking our place. You know, I think even in the, you know, big whole redemptive history thing, there's even symbolism there in terms of what's happening. Remember, in Genesis 3, it is Satan who comes in the form of a serpent. And God said there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And one day, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then as we've been going through Genesis, we've seen how that enmity has been playing out between the people of God, or the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. That constant rivalry and conflict going on where the people of God, you know, somebody's trying to kill someone, especially the chosen of God the seed of the woman. You see that rivalry going on, and then you come to, we're almost at the end of Genesis, and as you come into Genesis, you see the seed of the woman collectively as the nation of Israel there, and yet the rivalry continues between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because who's the head of Egypt? Pharaoh, somebody who's got a snake head right there. That's the son or the seed of the serpent. He tries to get rid of male babies. You remember that incident with Moses? And how God then defeats, in that instance, the seed of the serpent and frees the seed of the woman, the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel are in the wilderness wandering. And what are they saying in Numbers 21? Why have you brought us here in the wilderness? Egypt was much better. And what does God give them? Serpents. It's almost like God is saying, you want Egypt? I'll give you Egypt. Don't you understand? I'm over Egypt. I've conquered Egypt. I've conquered the snake. I'm over the snake. In fact, so many implications, again, in the book of Exodus itself, where, where Moses is told to put down his staff, and it turns into a snake. And then God says, pick it up. That's God saying, you know what? I'm in charge of Egypt, because Egypt was always represented more like a snake. Then you have Moses even going in front of Pharaoh himself, where his staff that serpent will eat all the other serpents of the Egyptians. Again saying, I am superior to you, serpent. Then you see it through the prophets, this, this language of serpent going on as symbolizing evil and again pointing back to the evil one. And then you come to Jesus' day. When Jesus looks at the Pharisees and the scribes, and what does he call them? Brood of vipers. 
Then you have Herod, who's trying to get rid of the seed of the woman. Another seed of the serpent right there, just like Pharaoh did in the Old Testament. And so what it's even symbolizing in the, in the grand scheme of things is that Jesus, by dying on the cross, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what he did. Where he died and he rose again and he defeated sin and death and Satan himself. So now if you're listening this morning, you're thinking, okay, okay so, so what do I need to do? How do I become a Christian? How do I have this new life? Well, think about it this way. Think about an Israelite during that time in Numbers 21. And he's outside his tent and he's doing something outside. And he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. And he hears the news as Moses has said, if you come by faith and look to this bronze serpent, you will be saved. What do you think this person is meant to do to be saved? Well, come to the bronze serpent. Look at the bronze serpent and believe that this is God's provision whereby he can be healed and saved. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, let me say this. I'm sure even in Numbers 21, there would have been people who did not believe. They would have been bitten by those serpents in pain, but they would have thought, a bronze serpent? Just simply look at a bronze serpent? Yeah, right. That's rubbish. That's foolishness. How is that going to save anyone? You know, the Bible says the cross of Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and the fact that he's risen up on the third day, that is foolishness for the world. They think, what are you talking about? I don't need to be saved. And then on top of that, you're saying God came in the form of a human being and then he died in the place of sinners and he rose up. That's just rubbish. I, I don't need any help like that. That's just foolishness. But let me tell you, friend, just like on that day on Numbers 21, where people who did not believe and chose to remain that way, they died. Even more so today, I tell you, that this is not foolishness. This is God's provision whereby you can be saved and you can have new spiritual life. A participation in the very life of God in communion with Him for the rest of eternity. If you will come and turn to Jesus. And with the eyes of faith, see him as not just teacher, as Lord and Savior, as one who came into this world sinless and died on your behalf for your sins and then rose up on the third day so that all who would put their trust in him would be saved. Would you not turn to him this morning? Or well, for those of us who are Christians, 
Easter, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, he did that so that we would be given this new life. And you know, the wonderful thing about this new life is it's a life that will continue on. Like even physical death will not stop this new life. It's a life whereby we're not just given now a clean slate to start afresh. No, it's a slate that has the righteousness of Christ so that now when we live, we bear the very righteousness of Christ and we're accepted forever before God's sight. So that we are forgiven past, present, future sins forever, never fearing condemnation. That's the life that we've been given. A life that has been washed clean, a new life. And it is a life that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Whereby you are now enabled to live for God, to obey His word and to make much of Jesus. That's the new life that Jesus has brought because of his death and resurrection. What a wonderful Savior and God we serve. Let's pray together. Lord, even this morning we recognize our inability to do anything. Our inability to ever reach out to you. Our inability to see you for who you are to recognize the great Savior and Lord Jesus is. Yet we thank you that because of your kindness and your grace, you sent Jesus to die on the cross on our behalf, to become sin for us, to be cursed on our behalf, and then to be raised to life so that we would receive this new life as we put our faith and trust in him. Thank you, Father, for this. May we, especially this Easter weekend, remember this life that has been graciously gifted to us because of what Jesus has done. And may we each day live in that hope and in that reality that this life continues on for the rest of eternity where we will have eternal fellowship with the triune God that you are. We thank you so much for this. Lord, we pray that you would bless even our afternoon time and our conversations. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.